Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. According to this week's Heptoscopy, this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network an alliance of independent educational podcasts. This month, we are promoting the English Renaissance History Podcast by Heather Tesco, a veteran of our network. In each episode, Heather discusses the life of a different person in the English Tudor period. Not just the great men, but the women and the lesser-known figures as well. So if you are a person who likes Tudors, check out the link in the show notes. Before we start today, I would just like to acknowledge the reckless, unprovoked, and pointless attack on Ukraine by Vladimir Putin. There are many humanitarian hotspots and wars going on at any one time in our world, but very few present more of a danger of destabilizing an otherwise peaceful region. Of course, the people who will really suffer from this are the Ukrainians and Russians on the front lines, the Ukrainian civilians trapped in bomb shelters, or at the Polish border, or killed in the shelling. That all of this was motivated by an irredentist nationalism that Europe thought long buried and dead, and which few people share just makes it all the worse. Okay, with all that said, we must thank those of you who have generously put your hard-earned cash at my disposal to help keep the show running. I got a lot of patrons, and I love you all so much. It's really, it's really uh, very flattering and wonderful, and I thank you all so much. There are so many new patrons that actually I'm breaking it up again. This month, I'm going to thank six people who are worthy of honor and praise and continue with the rest of you next episode. Now then, John is the first one up, and due to his great services to the kingdom of the podcast, he shall be known from henceforward as Sir John, the Rhizome of Chivalry. Next up, we have Sam, who shall be known from this day to many other days as Master Sam of the Bellmakers Guild, Lord of the Dings. Thank you, Sam. <laughs> up next, we have William, whose great services to the show have earned him the sobriquet Duke William, who ate a pie this one time, and it was really funny, but I guess you had to be there. Next up, Jeremy, whose worthy deeds have earned him the title Earl Jeremy, the infamous nutritionist of Dumladrig. Next up on the list, we have Angus, whose many valorous services to the realm will be recognized with the title of Viscount Angus, protractor of all widows and orphans everywhere. And lastly, but certainly not leastly, we have Joe, whose glorious deeds have earned him recognition for all days as Saint Joe, patron protector of uncles twice removed. Thank you so, so much to John, Sam, William, Jeremy, Angus, and Joe. Your services keep the lights on, keep this thing going, keep me motivated. And thank you to all of our donors and patrons, old and new, you really keep this whole thing going. If you want to join their surried ranks, head over to my website, wittenbergtowestphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the donate page, or check out the store page, and at least read the descriptions of the merch, because I put a lot of work into that. You can also follow me on twitter.com, join the Facebook group, and just say hi via email. It's always really good to hear from you all. And with that, let us to it. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. And so he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, Listen to them and give them a king. Quote from the Bible as accessed by thebiblegateway.com and as read by Brendan Foster, editor of the History of Sackart Velo Georgia podcast and friend of the show. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story from the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 82, Medieval Kingship Part 1. So, what is it you do here? First off, thank you all for your patience over the last few months. It was highly not ideal, but so it goes. In any case, I've finished much of the reading I needed to do, and I'm ready to start getting this party started. I also have my new mic, so hopefully the audio quality is good, and we will be nailing that all down over the next couple episodes, I'm sure, figuring out what works and what doesn't. In any case, in the last real episode, I introduced the investiture controversy a bit and outlined the next few months of the show. Then I interviewed Zach Twomley about his book, and then David Montgomery, and I talked about everyone's favorite skin condition, scrofula. Today we start with a brief discussion of medieval kingship, and just to get it off the bat, you may be wondering why this is necessary, as we all sort of know what a king is. And in some surface-level ways, European kings were just an extension of the European aristocratic system, and we already spent months discussing that, so why take an extra episode here? Well, two episodes. Well, I think it's important to say that, in general, our sort of childhood understanding of the king as a guy who is in charge and can do anything he wants because he was the son of a king and that made him special so everyone else would listen to him, all that has some stuff about it that's right and some that is wrong. The king was thought of as special and mystically important. We will address this more in a bit, and we started mentioning it even in the last episode, but in the Middle Ages, the anointment ritual was something special. It involved someone smearing a person's forehead with perfumed oil, and a ritual that was sort of like baptism, but more so. In the Middle Ages, only bishops and kings were anointed, and this created a fair amount of confusion about the king's status. Again, we'll get into this more next episode. Suffice it to say now that the king was seen as being more holy than a normal person. That said, pure one-man rule never works, whatever its ideological justification, because one man can't do everything and be everywhere. Delegation of authority simply has to occur at some level, and people who have been delegated power need a reason to obey the ruler. That reason might be an ideology, but any ideology creates some sort of set of rules that start to constrain behavior, and the more people you add to the system of power delegation, the more likely it is that you will need material benefits, and things become complicated. And at the end of the day, there is a basic power dynamic in any such arrangement. If the king has the power of life and death, and he decides that I should die, why should I not kill him first? And if the king wins that dispute, why should the other people around the king not worry that they will be next and preemptively kill the king? Very rapidly, this line of thought will lead a modern observer to thoughts of the European Enlightenment, when absolute monarchs ruled over a strong bureaucracy, justified by the divine right of kings, even as new and dangerous ideas about social contract theory had begun to percolate and undermine the social order. 
It's difficult to think about medieval kingship without slipping into those anachronistic sets of assumptions and sort of seeing everything that was going on as a, a poor early version of what was going to come later. But we have to try. This was a long period of time, and the people in it were not stupid. They had their own theories, they had their own ways of looking at the world. So, let me set out the board a little bit. In the Middle Ages, there was a mystical religious significance to a king, which I will elaborate more shortly. In a sense, the king was divinely ordained to be king. However, the king had a very limited bureaucracy, and the concept of divine right, as it would be articulated later in European history, was not yet fully extant. Instead, there was a concept that there was a proper order to the world, and that there needed to be a king, and that a person becoming powerful, as a king was, must have God's will behind them, because the alternative would be that a human became powerful in spite of God, and that would be blasphemous. So the king had some kind of divine sanction. But to rule, the king worked with a court of personal friends and relatives who had personal relationships with the king, and in that kind of situation, the aristocrats could not miss the fact that the king, despite the supposed divine sanction, was a human being who ate food, burped, had sex, pooped, and eventually died. Ideally in that order. Once the nobles became basically literate, or were able to partake in any kind of shared oral history, they would learn that there were good kings, who people liked and thought deserved to rule, and there were bad kings, who got allowed to get deposed. I will get into a detailed description of the cultural influences in a bit, but suffice it to say that good kings were considered to not be tyrants, and tyrants were people who did a bad job of being king. If someone was bad at being a king, the aristocrats could be justified in removing them. Most of today's episode is going to be a discussion of what made a person a good or a bad king. This treads on territory that starts to sound similar to social contract theory, but there are some important points to consider that differentiate the medieval conceptions of limited kingship. First and foremost, it's not stated in terms of universal rights. To be sure, rights are a common topic of conversation, but as with so much in the Middle Ages, the rights are particular and personal, like Duke Bill's right to get tax revenue from a particular sheep pasture, rather than the rights of all men to free speech or something like that. Which leads to the second point. Not everyone could just up and have an opinion about how the king was doing. Commoners, with very few exceptions, did not and should not have a voice in the conversation. It was the aristocrats, particularly the major landholders and the church, who were allowed to have opinions about this kind of thing because they were the educated ones, they were the great and the good. And even then, it was an act of despicable treason to want to remove the king unless a large number of the other aristocrats also agreed with you. This leads to the obvious question, what makes a king a good king? This is actually a fairly complex question, and as usual, the reasons for the complexity come in part from the very hybrid nature of medieval society. The biblical, classical, and Germanic traditions had very different conceptions of single-person rule, and some of them were contradictory, and many were present in the resulting brew of medieval culture. Let's start with biblical influences. I don't want to get too deep into the text here, but since the Bible was a key point of reference for all the politically connected people in Europe, this is one of the most important points to cover, because the usual caveat persists here. We're talking about an entire region, arguably an entire continent, and specific conditions were very different in England versus in Italy versus in Hungary versus in Scandinavia. And yet there was clearly a shared European cultural conception going on here. And the Bible is one of the most obvious places that people were taking their influence from. Now, in the Bible, there are a few kings, but the Bible is actually really skeptical about the institution of monarchy. The first time the idea of a king of Jews comes up is when the Jewish people ask Samuel to find them a king, to help them compete with other people and just generally fit in better. This was the intro quote to today's episode. Samuel is horrified and tells them that a king is going to impose taxes, keep a standing army, and possibly rape their daughters. Three things which were apparently considered equally horrible if I'm reading the text correctly. Regardless of these threats, the people want a king anyway, so Samuel finds the biggest, dumbest guy who walks by and anoints him with holy oil and wishes everyone good luck. Apologies for this somewhat offhand reading. Initially, this big, dumb guy, who is named Saul, is transformed by anointing. Just the very act inspires him to follow the commandments of God, and he's rewarded with military victories. Eventually, he stops obeying the commandments of God, at which point God's blessing moves to David. David is a smarter person and lasts longer in the good graces of God, but eventually he too commits some late adultery and murder and is duly punished. Interestingly, one of the punishments he faces is a rebellion. 
The rebellion is crushed because David still has God's blessing, but the rebellion itself is seen as a punishment. This gets into the really complex worldview that the Torah has of the problem of evil, particularly in terms of political events. Now, this is now normally I don't get into this kind of detail, and this is not a theology podcast, but the conceptions expressed here are really, really important as they were interpreted in medieval history, so please bear with me. So the basic problem of evil is that bad things happen to good people. In terms of the Torah, the problem is bad things happen to Jews. And in the political realm, this can be rephrased as bad things like conquests happened to God's chosen people, the people of Israel. If God is all good, all knowing, and all powerful, how can this happen? How can the Assyrians or the Babylonians conquer the Israelites if God is what he says he is? Well, the answer in the Tanakh is that God is actually using the Assyrians to punish the Israelites for their misdeeds. So far, so good. But if you look into the details of what the prophets are saying in these passages, things get pretty wild. To summarize, the Assyrians, for example, are said to be doing God's will, so it actually would be evil to oppose them. At the same time, the Assyrians are evil pagans who do bad things to Israel, who God loves, so God will inevitably punish the Assyrians, just not until he has finished punishing Israel. So it's a bad thing to oppose the Assyrians until someone else comes in and does it for you. Okay. But then there are other times where God miraculously drives the Assyrians away with a plague at the last minute, or grants the Israelis military victory. To tie this all back to concepts of kingship, say you're an average Israelite. If you are the subject of a tyrannical king who is taxing your standing armies, maybe you deserve it, because the king is God's anointed, and this is actually what you asked for when you asked Samuel to pick you a king, so you're just getting what you asked for. But then maybe the king actually has lost God's blessing and is doing bad things, and it's time to transfer your allegiance to David. But how do you know which situation you're in? Well, in the Torah, you ask a prophet. But not having too many of those banging around in the Middle Ages, people had to figure something else out. Podcast footnote. Modern biblical scholars have speculated that these stories in the later parts of the Torah represent factional polemics by people in the courts of Israel or Judah. We see these kinds of polemics throughout history, actually when people are in an underdog power having to decide how to balance between two powerful neighbors, you end up with factions in court supporting one side or the other and writing polemics for and against their position. It's just that in this case, some of the polemics that were written down had some really interesting theological discussions about the problem of evil in them, and so when it came time for the Bible to get compiled, uh, the rabbis put them in. And of course, once it was preserved, it was ultimately compiled into the Torah, and then the Pentateuch, and then the Vulgate, and so on, until the writings were entirely divorced from all context, and medieval Christian theologians were left puzzling about what to make of it all. For more information about this kind of thing, I definitely recommend checking out History in the Bible podcast by Gary Stevens. It's very balanced, and takes the various religious interpretations into account, as well as modern academic interpretations. And it's just a fun listen. So, check it out. End podcast footnote. I mostly focused this discussion on the Old Testament because the New Testament doesn't have too many kings in it, and also because the New Testament was very influenced by the Greek and Roman world in which it was written, and this classical world had its own traditions of rule. The one thing I will say is the quote that everyone probably knows, render unto God what is God's, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, without getting too much into the context in the text, this is one of those things that, depending on your point of view, can indicate, well, obviously, in this world, you should give the king or the state or whatever everything that they ask for. Or if you have a different point of view, you can say, well, what isn't God's? Anyway, moving on. With that, let us transition to look at that worldview of the Greeks and Romans. Now, interestingly, the Romans, too, had a history of being very skeptical of kings. The democratic and republican traditions of the Roman Republic and the Greek city-states were very much still alive in the Roman Empire, and so it was that the emperors of Rome never claimed the title of rex. That would be declasse. They initially preferred principes, later dominus, but, of course, also imperator, or emperor. This, of course, sort of demands that we take a slight aside and answer something of a basic question. What is a king, anyway? I don't want to actually spend too much time on this, because it's sort of a moot point, but in modern technical usage, it's someone with political control over one people or country, as opposed to an emperor who rules over multiple peoples, or a chief who rules only part of a people. 
Thus, in the Middle Ages, the Holy Roman Emperor in Germany was theoretically on a higher level from the kings in England, uh, and theoretically should have been given due deference by them. In practice, I tend to find these distinctions meaningless. They were important to the people at the time, trying to assert international dominance, or in the case of the Roman Empire, to cling to a fig leaf of loyalty to popular ideas of republicanism, but realistically, all these people were unitary rulers who held all power of their state and delegated them as they saw fit within their territory. So, I will just be using the term king and emperor interchangeably in this episode, because at a basic level, everything in the Middle Ages was so messy that, you know, you could even argue that some of the kings weren't even kings, they were maybe nobles or whatever. So, let's just stick to king in terms of the ideologies of the Middle Ages, and I'm just going to go back and forth. Anyway, Roman traditions of rule have a lot of the same basic concerns as the Bible. The need for unitary command and war conflicting with the fear of tyranny is sort of just a universal human concern. Anytime you start having a society and you have literacy, you find thinkers talking about these kinds of things. I will just point to the concept of the mandate of heaven in Chinese traditions. The Romans, though, came to some different conclusions. The Romans had a very legalistic tradition. For them, the key point was that there was an office, the emperor, who ran things. That emperor should rule with the consent of the governed, but how that consent was obtained was not as important as the fact that the consent was obtained, and that consent had to be expressed in a way that met the literal standards of the law. As such, the process for becoming an emperor generally went something along these lines. The emperor gained the loyalty of an army, which gave him their consent for him to be emperor through acclamation. The king used that army to gain the consent of the other armies through war. Then the emperor would bring the army to Rome and use it to get the consent of the senate, the final arbiter of imperial rule. This was obtained by having the army stand there and look threatening. Once the senate was threatened enough to give their consent, the emperor was emperor, legally. At that point, the entire bureaucracy and the legal structure viewed him as legitimate and viewed anyone else attempting to challenge that rule as troublemaking rebels who were going to cost the Roman Empire lives and spend resources needlessly, and therefore must be punished accordingly. Of course, if the emperor was so evil that the rebels or palace conspirators succeeded in their rebellion or coup, well, then he deserved it for being a tyrant and it was on to the next one. It sort of is understandable why the Roman Empire had a stability problem when it came to the emperors. <laughs> At the end of the day, the legal theory of the empire was whoever is strongest is the emperor, and we owe him our loyalty because he's strongest. But for most of the empire, it should be said that strength had to be expressed via republican institutions, and people got kind of cranky at emperors who didn't, at least for a long time. Once you got past the crisis of the third century, they found new ways to establish legitimacy without the senate, but we'll get back to that. This very distorted version of republican and democratic political philosophy is odd to a modern reader to the point of absurdity, but it's not too hard to realize how it happened. Without just telling you to go listen to Mike Duncan's History of Rome, the Roman system was just a republican system, deeply distorted by corruption, to the point that the corruption itself came to have a recognized role in the system. In any case, the ideal of elections and collective decision-making would continue into the Middle Ages because the idea that a government needed the consent by the governed is not that hard to conceive of and seems only fair. The reality that elections were often stage-managed window dressing would similarly become part of medieval culture, and to be honest, that was a real flaw in the idea of democracy up until the development of the centralized state. Which is to say, until we developed the institutions like nonpartisan overseers and an independent judiciary that provide oversight to how elections function, it's honestly hard to conceive of a system where just social drift wouldn't lead someone to start not playing by the rules and undermine the fairness of elections. Even within institutional frameworks of the modern state, that happens, though we at least have some of the tools to fight back against it. This does, though, explain why democracy in general was fairly hard to make work in earlier times and places. As the ancient world transitioned to the early medieval world, Roman political theory underwent some changes that are important to note. As the empire moved from the principate to the dominant, old republican forms of legitimacy were just no longer carrying any weight. And emperors who were familiar with Eastern forms of rule tried to start finding ways to get loyalty that didn't necessarily re rely on human institutions. The strongest idea from people like Diocletian was that we should maybe make the emperor someone who is somehow holy rather than just powerful, to help cement their rule and move past the seemingly constant rounds of civil wars. 
After all, if the emperor is a god king, then, you know, you'd be pretty dumb to try and attack them. They only partially succeeded. Ultimately, the adoption of Christianity took this pre-existing policy direction and used biblical justifications for kingship to justify the idea that the emperors were particularly holy people. The concept of Davidic kingship, which we were talking about before, came to be articulated here, and we should just take a moment to elaborate on that. Davidic kingship is based on the ideas in the Torah that David was a good king because he lived according to God's law and enforced God's will. Of course, by the time this was actually being put into real practice and articulated in writing, we're talking about a concept that was being done in a Christian and an imperial context. So the conceptions of Davidic kingship in practice were based on the idea of the Old Testament filtered through Christianity in general and in a form of Christianity that was useful to Roman emperors in particular. Got it? So the things that the king was supposed to do in the original biblical context were things like enforce laws, only have one god, be successful on the battlefield, and do things for the good of the realm rather than for personal gain. This led to some weird concepts, but kings in the Torah were theoretically to blame if anyone in the kingdom started sneaking peeks at an idol or got away with some crimes, and the punishments were often collective in the form of plagues. So it was important to enforce the law, and some severity was expected. These concepts were stated in different and important ways, but overall they worked well with Roman conceptions of legalism and military expansionism. Notably, the idea of ruling for the good of the realm rather than personal gain has similar concepts in Hellenistic culture going back to Plato. For other requirements, the Romans were all about enforcing laws and had their own legal codes and bureaucratic systems that were adapted to help the emperor do their duty as Davidic kings. The biggest real change here was that now these systems were used to enforce Christian religious orthodoxy rather than ginning up local support by sponsoring pagan cults. Roman concepts of authority also demanded other things, like stimulating the economy and conducting massive construction projects, and this allowed the empire to replace earlier pious donations to pagan cults with church-building programs and devotions to various local saints. This became particularly important in terms of the Christian concept of charity. In the New Testament, it's very clear that helping the poor and the defenseless was a Christian virtue. In the Roman tradition, charity was a semi-private affair. Rich people were expected to give out patronage to the poor in return for votes, with the richest person being the emperor, who gave away free or price-controlled grain to the poor in large cities. This system performed some functions of social care, but was really being done for transactional reasons, as in, you give me a vote, I give you grain. As the empire Christianized, emperors changed the emphasis of their work towards showing themselves to be good Christians, who were actively giving money and resources to assist poor people for the good of their soul, not because they expected something in return. Politically, of course, the point was playing to the bleachers, as it were, showing all the bystanders who had power that the emperor was a good person and worthy of political support. More on this shortly. The ideological merging of the empire and the church did not sit entirely comfortably. Christianity started out as an insurgent religion within the empire, built itself up out of a cellular structure that latched into a loose hierarchy that paralleled the Roman imperial system. In the New Testament and the early church fathers, the concept of the church was that of a community of all believers. And indeed, this conception of Christianity as co-equal with the church would persist until, oh hey, the investiture controversy. But that ideology can't mask the reality that a hierarchy existed, and that this presented an alternative form of authority from the Roman imperial state. Indeed, this was sort of the real reason Christianity was seen as a threat, and it is also likely one of the reasons that Constantine saw the idea of co-opting Christianity as attractive. If this parallel hierarchy that touched on people's innermost thoughts and feelings and emotions could be used for the empire rather than against it, it could help solve the rolling legitimacy crisis that the empire constantly seemed to face. So, when Constantine began making the Roman Empire a Christian empire, it made the relationship between the emperor and the Christian hierarchy a key part of the emperor's duties. At the same time, this was expressed in terms of the concept that the king must be the protector of the church from enemies outside and indeed inside the community, which allowed the church to spread. But it also meant that a religion that seemed to valorize poverty and meekness and social leveling had somehow to justify the power and wealth of the Roman Empire and political hierarchy. It also meant that the emperors were in the business of enforcing religious orthodoxy, and that earnestly held differences in religious doctrine could be taken as treason against the state, and vice versa. We will get back to this in later episodes. It is worth saying right now that 
The Byzantines never really got into burning people on pyres for religious heterodoxy. That said, because the emperors had massive control over the religious orthodoxy, they would do things like impose priests and bishops who had their views onto communities that had different views, which would lead to political unrest. Moving on. The issue of mercy was a complicated one for kings to follow. It was a Christian virtue, but kings were supposed to be unyielding in their assertion of the law. Allowing lawbreakers to be within the kingdom could potentially cause a plague, but somehow they're also supposed to be merciful. These were conflicting requirements. The way it was dealt with in the Middle Ages is something that we will get to shortly, but suffice it to say that this aspect of Christian doctrine did gradually begin to change the kinds of punishments inflicted on the Roman state over time. By the Middle Ages, the carrying out of actual capital punishments was fairly rare, especially in comparison to the crucifixion and gladiator happy days of the High Empire. The early days of Christianity within the empire were full of Christian leaders urging emperors to take down some of those, those listed punishments because the Christians had suffered as people being crucified and being put into gladiatorial games. Let's finish this off by turning to the Germanic tradition. It is always difficult to disentangle Germanic traditions from the Greek and Roman influence they'd been under for centuries, but suffice it to say that the Germans had many similar concepts of rule and a few somewhat different ones. Like the Romans, the Germanic people had concepts of consent in their rule. Many decisions were made collectively, with a leader in conversation with their people. Such collections of people also often picked the king, something I will be discussing more next episode. The king's job was, first and foremost, to deliver victory in battle. A warrior culture, kings led from the front, and their bravery and physical prowess was an important part of their image and their ability to command the loyalty of their warriors. These kings, as military leaders, were also responsible for collecting the loot and distributing it fairly. This is to say, they got the proceeds of war, but were expected to dole it out as a reward to their followers based on the achievements and political importance of those followers. The king himself was seen as a person, but also somewhat more than a person. Stories, in the form of poems and songs, were told about the king and the king's family members, and ancestors most importantly, by professional storytellers that traveled around. In these stories of the king's ancestors, stories would become more and more fantastic, until ultimately they entered into legend, at which point the justification of the king's status became divine. In pre-Christian peoples, the king's family was often said to descend from Woden, or Thor, or Freya. These stories imbued the king's family with a sense of specialness that helped ensure their legitimacy as a clan, and helped make warriors think it was a good idea to follow them in war. After all, this guy over here was the great-grandson of Thor. He couldn't lose, right? It is also likely that these kings had a ceremonial role in sacrifices and things like that, but the specifics of this seems to vary fairly widely over the Germanic world, which is a very large space, and they are hard to pin down in textural records, leaving us with just the archaeology, and it's like, well, I don't know who caved that guy's head in with a club. It could have been a king. I don't know. So we've, we've got evidence. We think some kings had sacrificial roles to play. That would certainly make sense with what we see in other similar types of culture, but we don't have any really solid specific evidence. When Christianity arrived, these factors of Germanic culture persisted, but were just morphed a little bit to have fit into a Christian guise. Inevitably, the first king who converted, for example, Clovis of the Franks, would become a saint, and legendary stories were built up around them. For example, in Clovis's case, that the anointing oil was brought down from heaven by doves. Their family line eventually became the only source of legitimacy, something that was reinforced by various important rituals, of which anointing was the most important. But again, that is for next episode. Suffice it to say that this whiff of holiness in kings made it easier for nobles to give them respect, for people to assume that their cause was righteous, and via the saints' cults that grew up around various family members, would even reinforce the loyalty of commoners. It also, it should be said, limited the pool of people that you could get a king from. And, of course, as we discussed last episode, this all made it easier for people to accept that the kings of France and England could heal scrofula, and just scrofula. Despite the divine nature of the king's family, the relationship between the king and their followers was extremely personal. If this seems strange, you should probably understand that a lot of those followers were members of the king's family themselves, which meant that they had the same level of holiness. 
In any case, even when that wasn't the case, the collective contexts in which decisions were made, which we might call proto-courts or councils or even parliaments, but we could also just call a feasting hall, usually took place in the king's residence, and as such often included families and servants. While the free men were expected to be given respect and pride of place, this was often all happening in the equivalent of the king's dining room, and it would be absurd to expect German women to hide away in private apartments as Roman and Greek women did. In a northern climate where everyone was clustered around heat sources, and in a time when it was impractical to heat multiple rooms at once, the king's hall was the queen's private apartment. They had nowhere else to go. So women had a role to play in Germanic kingship. So did servants. So did other people. This was mostly in the role as observers to be impressed by a well-made speech or story, or to give applause when appropriate, but there were times when their role made it so that they were the people who were most appropriate to play a role as participants in a debate, if they had a point that people in different social standings couldn't make. And as far as the servants and everything go, everyone was getting drunk, so... You know, at a certain point, it could be very dangerous to speak out of turn, but also sometimes they said something and everyone laughed and they were allowed to get away with it. At least that's the impression we get from the sagas and things like that. What is remarkable is that in many ways, different facets of these three very different cultures with very different places in time and levels of material development were able to interface in really constructive and functional ways. Though, of course, the structure created had many contradictions and tensions that had to be reconciled. To begin at the most important function, demonstrated prowess in war is a trait that has some downsides, namely a notable tendency to become dead. Since a king's first duty was to be king, and this was difficult to do when dead, this meant that the idea of battlefield leadership was gradually tempered, borrowing much from the Roman tradition that allowed a king to claim martial prowess without, you know, marshalling too much. This tendency had to be balanced out by having the king be someone who could serve as a good general, who was personally inspirational to the troops, and at least was a person who passed the laugh test in terms of physicality. All of which is to say that a king in the Middle Ages had to be able to show prowess in the other pursuits of aristocratic culture, short of leading from the front in battle. This meant hunting, combat training, a bit later jousting, and most importantly, feasting. The feasting hall in Germanic cultures was where everyone got together to share a meal, get drunk together, and talk. These are all activities that we do today to get closer together to people, and in medieval culture it was no different. That said, there was more of a structure to it than just going to the nearest uh, Mexican restaurant and drinking cheap Coronas while eating nachos. And if you said the wrong thing out of turn, you could get stabbed. So, you know, that, that was a thing. All of which is to say that people would get together, they would eat, they would drink, they would listen to songs, they would listen to poetry, and they would, after each song, they would get up and make a formal speech. They would give each other oaths of loyalty. They would be put on this show of renewing their bonds together, all of which was supposed to help create political and military cohesion, but which is also not too different from your best friend in college tearfully saying, I love you, man, you're such a good friend, over your 15th game of Mario Kart. That said, the relationship between the king and the nobles was about more than drunken bromances. Key to maintaining the relationship between the king and the nobility was the distribution of material rewards. Again, this combined precedents from various bits and bobs of cultural precedent. In Roman culture, the emperor was the center of a patronage network that was used to keep the senatorial elites quiet. They would distribute governmental posts and government contracts in such a way that everyone got a taste of the benefits of empire. Of course, particularly loyal or successful people could expect more and better benefits, but the emperor was expected to be fairly equitable and not leave anyone actually important out of the deal. Christian requirements for charity and generosity in a ruler did combine with this element of the emperorship, though there are other dimensions that we also need to discuss later. In Germanic cultures, the king was the ring giver, distributing the jewelry and other spoils of war to his retainers as a reward for service. When Charlemagne became king, and then emperor, practices shifted a little bit. Charlemagne was the single person most directly responsible for merging the Germanic and other traditions, and it's in this area of distribution of material goods that Charlemagne was the most influential. He took the Roman concept of patronage as a replacement for the distribution of rings, at least in terms of the higher-level aristocrats. Everyone else still got paid from loot, but that was not the way to run an empire. To manage the bureaucracy and the aristocracy, you needed a constant source of cash, not just like a one-time bonus. 
Charlemagne's innovation was an attempt to recreate the Roman administrative system, except instead of paying people salaries, they would get lands with tax collection rights replacing the actual salaries. For subsequent European kings, this became part of their function at court. They were now the land giver. As lands were conquered in war, or confiscated due to rebellions, or due to the extinction of family lines, the king was expected to reward his followers with gifts of land. That said, the king was supposed to do this in a very particular way. While successful or popular people should expect to get a bit more, the key thing was that no individual or faction at court should get too much more than the others. If they did, the king was accused of playing favorites, and the subject of his generosity was liable to be labeled as an evil counselor, seeker for personal gain rather than the good of the realm. On the flip side, a king that gave away too much risked bankrupting himself and losing the ability to function as a military leader or protector of the law and church. So the king and the court in general had to strike a very careful balance when distributing patronage, lest anyone feel left out. This balancing act was made easier if there was a successful war of conquest, or a rebellion was put down and lands were confiscated, but in times of peace it became fairly difficult, and sometimes the king had to resort to finding ways or excuses to confiscate lands, but of course that ticked off the noble families whose lands had been confiscated, and this became a problem. This is, you know, going to come up in future episodes, so keep an eye on that. To help prevent this kind of resentment developing in political entities that were now more than a day's ride from the king's hall, the monarchs of Europe developed a unique kind of court. Because bonds between the king and the nobles were personal and had to be renewed face-to-face over the medieval equivalent of a bad movie night, the kings abandoned the idea of a single base of power, and the king's court became peripatetic. That is to say, the court was constantly moving around the kingdom to allow members of the ruling classes to have physical access to the king and his family to reforge the personal bonds between them and to discuss policy. This also helped ensure that the king was distributing patronage relatively evenly, since it made sure that there was geographic diversity in the people who were represented at court, because some nobles would only show up in court when the court was near them, and so there was sort of a changing cast of characters. To be fair, many of these nobles were doing things like keeping terrifying barbarians out of the kingdom, so the king would travel to them rather than abandoning their post to attend the king. Other key advantages to the system were that it avoided the requirements that the king develop a sophisticated administrative system to supply the court with goods. Which is to say, rather than shipping resources from the king's various possessions to a central capital region, the king himself would move from hall to hall, using up local surpluses and then moving on. Ultimately, it was not a system that would last, but basically from the time of the late Merovingians up until well into the high Middle Ages, this was actually the norm. So a good three centuries or thereabouts of time, which isn't nothing. This shift in terms of the king moving from a ring giver to a land giver reflected a wider change in the culture of the king's inner circle. The culture of the feasting hall was gradually replaced by the culture of the court. While still a place where the king and his immediate family members and his close friends hung out while making legal decisions and setting policy, the whole thing became more formal. Many of the people in the room became members of the clergy, who helped administer the kingdom and set the agenda. As educated men, they were less interested in drunken debauchery, and so they helped set the tone of the new activities for the new court. Poets and singing had always been part of feasting culture, but the intertwining of this culture with Roman culture saw the inclusion of readings from the Bible, discussions of theology, the showing of plays, and the reading of Greek and Roman literature into the entertainments. More members of the aristocracy attended the king, though it was necessarily a changing cast, as I said. There were several things of note that did not change in this shift. As a ring giver, the king was expected to present a public image of opulence. After all, why would you, an honorable thane, hitch your horse to an impoverished cart? You were unlikely to get rings, don't you know? This did not change at base as the court became Christianized and Romanized. There was some change in the way the opulence was displayed. While silks and jewelry were still de rigueur in the kingly outfit, the investments we just talked about in terms of literature, educated men, minstrels, entertainments, and other marks of sophistication were also part of this politicized display. The only difference is that now kings were competing to show themselves as cultured and sophisticated, not just stinkingly rich. Much as with the Roman emperors, all this contrasted sharply with the Christian requirements for modesty and poverty, but this display was central to the king's role to the point that the kings who attempted to askew this kind of display sometimes lost respect and power. This was a required part of projecting their image to keep the nobles in line, and the kings did not dare resist it, to the point that kings who had genuine religious misgivings about all this felt the need to hide it. 
There are several reports of kings wearing hair shirts under their silk garments, for example. We'll circle back to this in a few minutes. The key thing to say here is that later in our story, we will start to find middle-class critics of the monarchy decrying the waste of all the kings and saying that the money spent on these displays would be better spent on the military or public projects. But for the kings of the early and high Middle Ages, these displays were not necessarily about living a posh life. They were about projecting power, first and foremost. Another thing that had not changed was the presence of women in court, and while the role of the queen was not yet as formalized as it would become, the queens often had a key role to play in the choreography of the court. Because of a good woman's role in society as nurturing and emotional figures, they helped square the circle of some of the conflicting demands on the king. You'll recall that a core function of the king was to enforce justice. Following Roman tradition, this implied a rigid adherence to the letter of the law through brutal punishments, and as the biblical tradition came into the scene, those laws came to encompass many things involving moral health and behavior. A king was supposed to hear criminal cases and be shocked by the memorial impropriety and impose harsh sentences. The king must be feared to keep up the moral character of the kingdom and retain God's blessing. However, the Christian tradition also valued mercy and charity, and called for Davidic kings to give people second chances. How could a king both be terrifying and merciful? By having a wife who fulfilled the duties of mercy and charity, while the king played out the role of stern and fearful master. And so it is that you often read in Chronicles a fairly common trope. A criminal will be brought before the king and thrown down on their face before the majesty of their lord. The crimes will be recited, and the king will seethe with rage at the injustices committed, often drawing their own sword and intending to carry out the punishment themselves. The person will grovel in terror and beg for mercy, saying their side of the case in the process and any extenuating circumstances. The king will be unmoved and prepare to strike the miserable creature. But lo, before the blow could land, the women of the court, led by the queen, would throw themselves at the king's feet. The chronicles would say that they were deeply moved by the defendant's begging. After all, he had a family, and he was your, also your second cousin, and so wouldn't it be wrong to kill him? The king would be given pause, sheath his sword, sit down and consider and for another moment. At this point, the bishop might intervene and discuss some less um, emotional reasons the king might want to pardon this defendant. They have a powerful family that was very loyal to the king and built me a church. It would cause a lot of trouble if they went into revolt, so maybe some mercy, my lord? Ultimately, the king would do whatever he actually had wanted to do in the first place. In many instances, the king executed the person despite the pleas of the women. Sometimes he would forgive them entirely after being swayed by the extenuating circumstances. More often than not, he would split the difference, coming up with some sort of reasonable punishment with the assistance of the clergy. The key thing was that this play acting allowed the king to retain his image as a firm defender of justice, while also showing mercy and wisdom. It also created a key governmental role for women in European monarchies, which we'll get into more in our narrative. Suffice it to say, though, that some women were definitely better at this than others and played up their role more or less. But that said, even women who seem to have had very little interest in any kind of politics and really hated court life and all that stuff, they're often written about in the Chronicles doing this kind of thing, even though it sort of seems out of character. The Christian need to show charity and enrich the church and the Roman virtue of public building projects also came together in new ways here, and incidentally also created roles for women in public life. Now, I should first say that direct traditional charity was very much a thing. The Chronicles are full of stories of the king meeting poor people on their journeys and giving them money and food. Throughout the whole Middle Ages, the poor could often score a hot meal by rocking up at the king's doorstep. It was far from uncommon for particularly religious kings to have their knights go out, pick a random beggar off the street, and bring him in to be feasted while the king washed his feet and served him food. As we discussed last episode, the height of this tendency was reached in France and England, where the kings actually started healing the sick, and there were a couple sainted monarchs who took this stuff, you know, really seriously. That said, this all had a key political function in creating the proper image for the king. I had mentioned the need for opulence in court, and the difficulty this created as the kings attempted to live according to the virtues of a religion that valued poverty and humility. Well, the king's acts of performative charity helped resolve this issue. It was generally felt that it was okay to be rich and powerful if you used your power to feed the hungry and protect orphans and widows. And washing the feet of beggars, serving them dinner with their own hands, or groveling before a saint's shrines showed that the king had the ability to be humble as a person. It was seen that the opulence and majesty of the court was just to keep the nobles in line and fulfill his role as king. As a person, he was still humble before God and the God's beloved poor people. 
None of this kept the king and his agents from shaking down the serfs for rent when the time came, but the chroniclers didn't write about that part. However, that said, there were more visible and demonstrative ways that the kings were charitable. After all, as today, many churches did not draw a distinction between charity that helped the poor and charity that helped, you know, them. Kings in the early Middle Ages did seek to build up capital cities, though because of their peripatetic lifestyle, this was not as intensive as it would be later. Instead, they invested money in cathedrals, churches, and monastic communities. From the point of view of the church, this was a charitable thing, and also served to physically defend the church from, you know, not having a physical church. The result was often large-scale building projects that represented the biggest monuments from this age. However, these building projects are not as straightforward as we might assume. Unlike Roman emperors, who built big arches and stuff to keep people employed and to tell the Roman people how awesome they were, the kings had somewhat different audiences in mind. First of all, there was God. For these people, who had no reason to doubt God's existence in a pre-scientific age, doing acts of lavish charity was a way to get on the big guy's good side. Couldn't hurt. For the people on the street, there was a feeling that we will be exploring more fully in the future that priests and monks were a public good. Farmers had no time to be holy and stuff, and it was felt that they were going to have to be sinful to do farm stuff for some reason. I'm not exactly sure what about farming makes you unholy, but anyway, that was the feeling at the time. That said, religious folks could spend all their time being holy, and then, uh, if they were nice, they could use that holiness to ensure the salvation of the farmers and the knights, who would ensure their physical security in return. Lavish donations to monastic communities were thus seen as building up a spiritual defense of the kingdom in the same way that building fortifications were a physical defensive structure. This would help guarantee that everyone in the community had a chance getting into heaven, because I guess the monks would be there saying, you know, oh God, I'm, you know, I'm so holy, uh, I'm, I'm not worthy, but if I have any kind of uh, worthiness at all, please help Farmer Bill over there. I should say, I'm being a bit glib, but these were deeply held religious beliefs, and I, I do respect them, you know, if that's the way. There's plenty of religions that work that way even today. If it gives people comfort and makes them feel good, I'm not here to criticize it. All that said, by the end of the early Middle Ages, there is a much more earthy element to all this. Monasteries and churches controlled lots of land and wealth. Some of that land and wealth was given to the church hierarchy specifically to ensure its development or stabilization, or to take it out of the hands of otherwise threatening and powerful nobles in the region. And in these cases, much of it was donated for the good of the king's soul. But whatever the case, these quickly became powerful institutions. And the thing you need to understand about these powerful institutions is that the power in these institutions was elective. Remember that discussion I had before about how in pre-modern societies it was very easy to manipulate elections? Yes, contrary to how the Catholic Church works now, almost all powerful positions in the Church in the early Middle Ages were supposed to be established by an election. For the monasteries, this was somewhat more straightforward. The monks voted for one of their number to be abbot, and then that guy was abbot for life, no takesies backsies. This is more straightforward because there isn't too much confusion about who is allowed to vote. Are you a monk? You vote. Are you not a monk? Get out of here. This wasn't the case in the election of bishops. According to the ancient traditions, bishops were supposed to be elected by the consent of the clergy and the people of the diocese. This may have been fairly straightforward during the empire when there was a tradition of republican government and people sort of knew how to run elections, but by the Middle Ages, that was gone, and now they had just this one regulation that said, consent of the clergy and the people. So, who's who? Who gets to vote? and how you balance the two votes. Is it just you get everybody in the city together and they all vote? Or do you have the clergy get together and vote and the people get together and vote and then hopefully they agree or something? And if they don't agree, which side wins? Who counts as people? Are we literally giving every poor beggar the chance to vote? That seems very not of the Middle Ages. So how do we do this? Obviously, this led to problems, as we will see going forward, but what is clear is that these are powerful positions that had political and strategic importance in the kingdom, and the king would obviously like to have some influence over these elections if he could. Now, it turns out, he can. Now, when a monastery was founded, this was a particularly direct transaction. The donor would find a like-minded holy person, recruit some brothers, give them a patch, and everyone would be off and running. The donor could depend on their loyalty for that first generation or two, and if that abbot that they happened to find who was like-minded happened to be their brother, well, oh, you know, that just seemed to happen that way. After that, however, the community might need to be reminded about who was protecting and looking after the church. 
So new donations would start showing up every now and again, along with maybe some suggestions that, you know, noble so-and-so is very friendly to your order and, oh, hey, he's got a cousin in the order. That might be a good next abbot. Just saying. Similar processes were used in the elections of bishops, because the clergy voted and building a nice new cathedral might be a great PR move. Also, for people in the city, this fulfilled basically the same function as the old Roman public building projects. You give a lot of people jobs building this cathedral that's going to take, you know, 150 years to build. So that's 150 years worth of jobs for a bunch of these artisans. They also get a nice new public building at the end of it. It is very similar and helps build good PR if you're helping to pay for it. This all brings us back around to the queens. The queens didn't have a lot of public power, but often we see that the queens were the ones put in charge of this kind of charitable activity. They did often have their own personal possessions, as we talked about during our discussion of medieval women. So they often had possessions in terms of their dowry and things like that. And beyond that, sometimes the kings would give them money to use for administrating this kind of thing. In any case, the queens would see to the establishment of monasteries, cathedrals, churches, and charitable institutions like early medical establishments that would help administer social care. This all flowed from the woman's traditional nurturing role, but it also gave the woman power over relationships and real economic political contacts, which were the things that made up the body of medieval power. Our favorite Empress Adelaide was particularly notable in both aspects of these kinds of generosity. She would sponsor cultural events at court, patronize poets and playwrights, and devoutly founded a good number of convents, monasteries, etc. It's notable that at least one of the playwrights at court was an abbess in one of the convents and was Adelaide's cousin and confidant. Numerous other family members found places as hangers-on in the cultural activities of court, or else took up a religious lifestyle and rewarded with well-endowed monastic communities. All of this helped to build up connections, which were the bit of political power in medieval Europe. This meant that the queen had actual say in things that were happening at court because she had strong contacts within the church. And on a day-to-day basis, this was probably used to assist her husband in his activities. But as we will see next time out, when time came for the succession, the queen might have her own views and her own political needs. And this would all become very important. As usual, this simple one-episode discussion has turned out to be longer than I expected, so I'm going to have to split it here. That said, the second half of this will not take three months to produce, so fear not. It's mostly already planned out, so I just need to sit down and write it. In any case, today we discussed the biblical, Roman, and Germanic traditions of kingship, particularly in terms of what a king was supposed to do and be as a king. These three traditions, along with the vagaries of human nature, resulted in contradictory requirements for a Davidic king of the Middle Ages. A good king should be severe and kind and merciful, generous but also rich, successful in war but a seeker of peace. These circles were increasingly squared by the ideological functions of the court, with women playing a key role in supposedly tempering the king's severity and allowing him to forgive without compromising his Roman-no-Old Testament-style severity. The key thing underpinning the king's power, however, was his personal relationships with his nobles, and those relationships were managed by the careful distribution of patronage in a way that seemed to be for the good of the realm, rather than a single faction, without the king going broke. It's also worth saying that these were relationships, and the king needed face time with as many of them as possible as often as possible. This contributed to the peripatetic style of courts in the early Middle Ages, but it also just goes to show how much of things were actually about just this one king's relationship with Bill over there. All of this is stuff we are going to be seeing in episodes going forward. Now, we have a little bit more to cover in terms of the role of a king, but the remaining aspects of the functions of the king are very much bound up heavily with the ways the king became king in the first place. And that, my friends, is the topic of the next episode. So you will have to wait, painful as it may be, for a few weeks as I get that one ready. In the meantime, there will be a new episode of Why Though, so be sure to check that out in the other feed. And with that, I bid you all a fond adieu until the next exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 